episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the New World Pictures Podcast. We have an incredible interview for you in this episode. My name is Ryan, with me as always is Mark. If I could psychically tell you what I'm thinking right now, I would. <laughs> you could just say it out loud. And Erica. <laughs> Hi. Hey there. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and... Talk to you later. <laughs> change a little bit. Erica's taking off already. She's already left. She's already she's, done. She's now leaving. She's now taking I've off. I've added all the value I can add. <laughs> so, uh, Charles Dennis is our interview for this episode. This is uh, a big get for us because after watching Cover Girl, which we covered last year, and then Reno in the Dock, which we covered earlier this year with our friend Dan Gorman. I mean, we had questions. We Lots. had questions mm -hmm. to ask Charles questions. Dennis. And luckily, got to talk with him and got a bunch of uh, answers. Uh, he, he It's a great month for him, too, by the way, because he not only has a, has a book out, there's a body in the window seat, which is a, a history of arsenic and old lace, but also the Criterion edition of arsenic and old lace is now available, and he did the commentary on it. So a big month for him. And he was just in a film festival in uh, Los Angeles for his like latest movie. So a lot going on for busy Charles. Guy. This is... Busy, busy. The fact that he took time out to talk with us is pretty amazing. Yes, very Pretty cool. incredible. Yeah, we are very lucky to, to get to talk with him and ask him stuff because we just had, we had questions <laughs> so we're going to talk to him about the movies that he did for new world we're also going to talk to him a little bit about arsenic and old lace that's where we'll start the interview and we'll also talk to him a little bit about other parts of his career how he got started into acting and writing and so we we, we had lots of questions we could have talked to him for a long time but uh anyway enough of us let's get into our chit chat with charles dennis uh and my my dear friend Brian Cox wrote to me today about it. This is uh, what the heck is it? Really, really nice. It's, he and I have been friends for a long, long. Ah, Charles, congratulations, heartiest congratulations. And now you're after all these years a full blown fisk. Much deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent invitation. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah, our favorite Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, good for you, yeah, yeah. That was uh, he got that. Uh, the casting woman went to see him in a play, and he had his back to the audience speaking, and she went, "Who is? Wow!" And and she pushed him <laughs> for it. Yeah, the opening, American. the opening scene. He's got his he's got his back to to uh, William Peterson when he walks in, right? So, and and Manhunter, yeah. And you do a lot of theater in the in the valley as well, right? You're still doing. Well, I, I did the play in April, and uh, that was my first show in about ten years. I got married uh, five years ago to the wonderful Ulrika Vingsbo, and she had never seen me on stage, and that was one of uh, that was an impetus for doing it. So Lisa, go, okay, she's seen it, and she sees what I do, and I thought this is it. This is my swan song, and. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this wonderful playwright, Larry Mullen, saw the show and he said, I want you to do my play about Ben and Hecht. So it may not be my swan song. <laughs> okay. Wow. Like Al Pacino, they, they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> 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 trying to leave. 
Hmm. Now, this is another. It's a big month for you too because uh, not only did you did your film uh, open at the Studio City Film Festival, but also you have your new book. Yeah, all up. Oh, oh, you can't oh. see it anyhow. Oh, you can. He's so, grabbing for a copy. Oh, I have one as she, well. Did she send you the book, Jessica? She she did not. I I went. Out, I got it myself. I ordered this one myself. Oh gosh, maybe I'll get some money. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I I hope so. That's what you know. I'm supporting you that way. So there's a body in the window seat. The the history of arsenic and old lace. Uh, your book that has just come out this month. Not only that, but also your commentary as well on the criterion release of arsenic and old lace as well to it? i did i did listen to it i listened to about 50 minutes and went not bad not bad but apparently it's it's very good i think it's really good and it's interesting when i was reading the book i was starting to read stuff and i I was like did have i read this but i had just listened to your commentary it's like oh perfect this is (laughs) you know this is such a great companion so fred melman said i don't know what to write he said just do the book Read from the book. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And the, but there's plenty more in the book as well. The book is yes. tons of information and uh, and really a delightful read as well. And so I, I haven't finished it, but I've been very much enjoying it. So um and, and, and it's interesting because I was aware of Arsenic and Old Lace because I've done a lot of theater and things like that myself. But I've never done the play. And I was unaware uh, all this time of the movie the, and the play that that it was actually based on a, a real story. Yeah, this 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 nutty dame in Connecticut who bumped <laughs> all the old men who came. She was running this nursing home. And yeah, it's a fantastic story. And Kesselring was this guy Joseph Kesselring had had very little success as a playwright. He was always writing comedy, and he thought what he needed was a drama, and he. He remembered this from being a kid about this woman who stood trial for murdering all these people. And he thought, well, what a great vehicle for Ruth Gordon or someone like that. And he he went to Connecticut and met the prosecutor and got all the files and started to write this serious courtroom drama and ended up with this not very good uh, play, but it was a great idea. And then Lindsay and Krauss read it and, and they went, yeah. We could we could do something with this. He made this. He made his deal with the devil with them, where they said we will split fifty fifty with you. You will have the credit. We don't want our name on it, but we're going to rewrite you. And uh, so is this curse because it became one of the longest running plays on Broadway mm-hmm. at the time of Kesselring's death in the sixties. He was making something like thirty-five thousand dollars a year in royalties, which in today's money was maybe three hundred thousand dollars. Sure, sure. But it those words weren't his, you know. Right. Those were those guys were great writers. Yeah, yeah. And what's also interesting to me, I mean, obviously we have watched uh, some of your movies and and know a little bit about your career. So to read the book, it's interesting to know that this that arsenic and all lace is really what kind of got you interested in and st- kind of started your career in, in a way. Well, I'd already been on the radio from the age of eight. So five years. And then I saw this movie and it, I was just really, you know, a 13 year old kid seeing this, this movie. And I loved Cary Grant at the time, many and still do, but I said, they're, they're killing people. <laughs> you know, <it's> <laughs> and then I remember it said, you know, based on the play by. And I saw it on a Saturday night. 
Monday after school, I raced to the library and there was a script and I went, wow. You know, and this the Boris, the whole thing about he said I looked like Boris Karloff. And then I looked at the cast and it sure enough, it was played by Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I, I got permission for, it was my elementary school graduation, and, and I did a half-hour tabbed version of the play that I adapted and directed, and I played Mortimer, and it was a wonderful experience. And then the next year in high school, I'd been told that, you know, first-year first, first year high school kids never get to be in the school play. I said, what is the play? They said, Arsenic Roll Lace. I said, I'll be in it. <laughs> and I ended up playing Dr. Einstein, and then two years later, uh, you know, I auditioned for a professional summer stock company, and uh, they cast me as Dr. Einstein. So this this play, you know, had, had this huge effect on my life, my career, my career. And then many years later, when I met Tony Perkins, uh, you know, we discovered we had this bond, and that he he had seen the touring company of it as a kid in Boston. And Karloff had come to Boston to do it. And that's what uh, changed his life. He knew from then on he was going to be an actor. Wow. I mean, wow, that's to, interesting that you both had that went same to experience. A against his, his mother had told Mrs. Mrs. Perkins was, uh, she ruled the roost, you know. Mm. She, 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 her favorite line to him was, you won't like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was determined. He snuck her. He snuck out on Saturday. He went to see it, and somehow after the show, he got himself backstage and walked out on that stage and walked that set, and that was it. That was wow. a turning point. Yeah, you tell an interesting story in the book about Anthony Perkins that he like never had Coca Cola. Like his mom had told him yeah, never to have it. Said he would like it. <laughs> so he just never even into adulthood he just never tried it no he went to his grave never having tasted it and those boys of his they go come on dad have a sip no 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 and there's a, <laughs> there's a reason uh, Hitchcock chose him for Mullen Bain <laughs> yeah she really oh, had her hooks in him father. this was a guy whose mother had you know interesting mm-hmm. yeah so it just got you started in theater, and that's where you you sort of started your career as a theater actor, right? I started in radio when I was eight. Right. I was on this children's radio show from eight to thirteen, and then, you know, I was doing plays in elementary school, uh, but then you know, theater. I started in the theater when I was sixteen, professional, and then uh, five years later. I, I wrote my first play and, and appeared in it. And, and, and then there was a, a period of about 10 years when I just I wasn't on stage at all. And then I went, and, and it was uh, 1980, and I went, I was living in LA, and I went to see Death Trap. Uh, Brian Bedford was doing the touring company, and I sat there and went, God, I'd love to do this play. And six months later, I was offered a chance to do it in London, Ontario, and I did. Wow! Yeah. For how? For so, but in that period before then, you were working as a writer then, right? Because you were 1970, 1980. I was exclusively a writer. And how did you get into just exclusively being a writer? Well, uh, as a kid, uh, 
you know, I would I would do adaptations of things. I saw, I remember seeing the movie Topper Returns when I was in eighth grade, and, and I loved it. And so I went to the principal of our school, and I said, could I do a, a, a radio version of it? You know, they, they, they had the PA system in the principal's office. Yeah. And I, I showed him my script. He said, this is an old movie. I said, yeah, but I adapted it. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm you know, it's like, hey, I mean, a 13 year old boy in your school. <laughs> so, so I'm doing, or maybe he wouldn't let me do it. I can't remember. Um, but I did a lot of adaptations, and I had uh, there was a man who taught at the uh, Eli Royal. He taught at the Actors Studio in New York, and he would come to Toronto on weekends to do classes. And a friend of mine, Sharon Acker, wonderful actress wanted him to take me on. I was 14. He's 14 years old. I, I, I can't. He said, he's good. Let him do it. So I did it. And, and uh, about two years later, I was in New York. And he told me, you know, you should do a, a Catcher in the Rye. I said, is it a play? He said, no, it's a book. But I said, well, how would I have that? He said, you'll, you'll see. You'll read it. You'll see. And, <laughs> and sure enough, you know, there was a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I, I just underlined the dialogue, and and, and I did it. And the, my teachers uh, at high school arranged for this theater for me. And they said, do you have the rights to this? Sure, I lied. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? So I wrote to the publisher, the Canadian publishers of the book, on a Friday, saying that I'm, I'm planning to do this adaptation of the UC Berkeley. What was it called? Coach House Theater. And uh, we did it. It was great, quite successful. And I, I invited the drama critic from the Toronto Telegram to review it, which she did. And uh, on Tuesday, I got a letter from the publisher saying, under no circumstances are you to do this play. But I did. Yeah. <laughs> and you did it and you did it anyway. Yeah. yeah Ask yeah. for forgiveness. <laughs> that's right. Instead of permission. That's right. Go for it. You know, and, and uh, so it started with adaptations, and um, and then and then uh, in the sixty-eight, I, I wrote my first produced play, and it was three one-act plays that took place in the same apartment. It was sort of a Toronto version of Plaza Suite, and and that's how I you know. And I've been writing for the newspaper uh, in Toronto as a teenager, writing the film and theater reviews. Well, that was a lot of fun. It taught me to write fast yeah. and write well, you know. And I learned after my my first piece, I a review I wrote, and the next day with the paper and a half of it was gone. And I said, "Well, where did it go?" They said, "Well, we didn't have room for all that." I realized, okay, if you want to see what you wrote there, just write the bare minimum. Don't mm -hmm. pat it. And I've been that way ever since. You know, I, I my writing is, is very spare. Hmm. And so how did you get into writing? I think was your first uh, produced script, uh, meaning in terms of television and film, was that your TV show uh, marked personal or was it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I had a couple of spec screenplays were optioned by different people, but not produced. Marked personal. Uh, yeah, it was very funny. I, I, uh, I wrote the pilot for Mark Personal, and and the uh, they turned it down, and 
this. And I said, you don't understand the concept. And I thought, well, I created it. (laughs) (laughs) I was welcome to tell her that was in England, but it's no different anywhere else. You know, it's, uh, you know, if you're not the muscle, forget about it. So that was that my first produced TV movie was a thing called Mirror, Mirror with Janet Lee and, and uh, Loretta Switz. And then I did the Jane Mansfield story, which mm-hmm. is a very prestigious piece. And it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's first serious acting job as, as Mickey Hardaway. Um, but you but you also had a screenplay. Now, you know, obviously we, we focus on New World Pictures movies. Um, which is how we it's not a coincidence that you're new world, yeah, right, (laughs) correct. (laughs) It's no, it's not a misnomer. It's not a misnomer. How embarrassed we were when we found out there was actually a company named that, (laughs) yeah. We thought we'd come up with our own title, but but there was there's a movie that your first movie that you came out with. I felt like this probably should have been a new world picture, Uh, and I'm talking about The Thirsty Dead. I, which was oh, you're right, you're right. That was my first, that was my first screen credit. Yeah. Uh, How did that come about? I came from England here, and um, my, my agent, who had been my agent, couldn't take me on time. He said, Here are these, oh, somehow these two guys, Shapiro and Lickman, found out about me. And uh, I went and met them, and I was writing uh, a novel called The Next Last Train Ride. And uh, they had a director interest in it. But in the meantime, I said, listen, we, we've got a guy that wants to write a horror film. And uh, I said, go along and meet him. And um, Terry Becker was his name. Yes, the guy who, dire- who directed it as well and came up with well, the story. Well, it was really interesting. Terry Becker had been a regular on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I don't know if you remember that series. Mm-hmm. With- sure, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. Uh, based on the Irwin Allen movie. Right. And uh, he was married to a Filipino woman whose uncle was Ferdinand Marcos, you know, the dictator who ran. Wow. And yeah. Wow. He said, and Terry Beck had a very thick New York accent and said, I, I don't want to just make a horror picture. I want to make the Marty of horror pictures. Oh my gosh. And, and he said, you know, my my uh, my wife's uncle is Ferdinand Marcos. So we're going to make this in the Philippines. And, and uh, we, we, you know, we got everything we want there. And uh, you, you should come. And, and I said, yeah. And uh, a couple months later, I was watching the news. And uh, President Marcos was on some platform with his wife, the, the, Imelda, with all the shoes. And suddenly, yeah. <laughs> a man ran up out of the audience with a knife and attacked him. And I sat there and went, you see the seat next to Imelda Marcos? That was me. That's where I would have <laughs> So I thought, I didn't want to go. <laughs> and wow. I, I never saw this film. It was, and, and there's a book, I've got it here on the shelf, called The Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. And it's all about horror films and, and bizarre whatever. And, and that was the first reference book that I was ever mentioned in. And mm. I finally found The Thirsty Dead in a bin. Oh, 
It was going to be called the Blood Cult of Shangri-La. And <laughs> wow. wait, 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 Terry Better. Um, Universal was doing the musical of Lost Horizon, which you know takes place in Shangri-La. So you figure it's a great title. They're going to pay me a fortune not to use it. <laughs> I don't know. It ended up being the Thirsty Dead. And I finally found it in the remainder bin about four years ago. Oh, it's horrible. I never got past 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Filipino extras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're on these weird sets uh, in this uh, cave. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh. I, I, yes. I watched it for this. Um <laughs> I, I, you know, I was, I saw this title. I saw the Thirsty Dead. I got to see this, and just the, the, I mean, the synopsis itself. I was like, how come New World Pictures never made this? This is, this sounds like a New World Picture movie. So, but, but you, you have expressed interest in Cover Girl. Now, was that yeah. New World or New Line? No, 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 that was New World. New that was New World Pictures. That was picked up after, um, after Corman, Roger Corman sold the company. Right. In '82, around that time in that transition, they were purchasing movies from different places to sort of fill their schedule while they were producing their own films. And they also had Roger Corman making movies as well, which they would then release. Um, would you stand up for a second, slightly? Oh, oh yes. Hold it, because I suddenly saw Kit Paget. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> you, you, how many times have you watched Cover Girl? Uh, <laughs> many, uh, many times. Many, Why? many. Why? <laughs> uh, it is. It, it is one of our favorites. <laughs> it, it came yeah. from nowhere, and we we love it. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's, 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 it, the, the backstory is better than the movie, but oh my god! Well, the, that's the thing about the backstory. Well, I was I was going to go a little bit more through your 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 history here, but since we're here, as, as you're probably aware, as obviously film historians, uh, from about the mid 1970s into the late 80s, there was this tax shelter in Canada for making movies. Mm -hmm. People were making movies left, right, and center. I thought, why why isn't anyone phoning me? Probably because I hadn't been in Canada for some time, living in LA. And then my friend George Bloomfield, uh, who was my mentor and a wonderful director, was going to do this movie called Double Negative, which was based on a Ross McDonald novel called The Three Roads. And Susan Clark was high on the list because, you know, she'd won the Emmy for playing uh, Babe Diedrichson and she was also. Amelia Earhart in a TV movie. She had a high TV cue. And she was one of the few Canadian actresses, young actresses, who had some kind of box office, you know, uh, cachet. And, and uh, every year, just before tax time, she would get the same script, this thing called Double Negative. And she said she always knew that uh, when to do her taxes because Double Negative would turn up in the, the mailbox for somebody. And finally, she said she'd do it if George Bloomfield directed it. And George Bloomfield said he'd direct it if I rewrote it. So that was my first Canadian film credit. Mm. And on the strength of that, I was and off. Became covered. Off of that, okay. okay. Now if, to go to yeah. double negative, yeah. which is also Canadian which... screenwriter. 
Okay. Uh, so, so and that, which is also called Deadly Companion, the movie. Yes. Uh, uh, it, it also had a bunch of members of SCTV in it. So George George was directing SCTV the first Got season. It. And so these were his kids. And, and it, we put them all into it. And is that where you first met uh, uh, Anthony Perkins? Yes. That's, that's how our friendship evolved from that. Although I didn't meet him on the shoot itself. I met his wife, Barry, who also became a dear friend because I dropped off the script to him over the, the Christmas holidays in 1980 or something. But it was an amazing cast of people in there, too. George's yes. Maury Chaikin, that was one of his early films. And, and Saul Rubinek, I think they were two window cleaners. And, and Michael Ironside uh, uh, starts a fight Ironside. in a bar. Uh, yeah, he, that was, again, I think he had been a... a I'm a prop man or, or some kind of scenic designer or something. It was one of the first gigs he ever had. Yeah, he he said he would just do anything if he 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 would. I wanted to be an actor, obviously, but he would do any job on a movie set as long as it got him to be on a movie set. So yeah. he, he he did all sorts of like crew positions as well, and then you know while he tried to be an actor in movies, and and this also Howard had Duff. your friend. I'm sorry, Howard Duff. You know, one of the last films he did. Oh, that's right. That's right. And and it's also had Kenneth Welsh. Kenny Welsh. Uh, that was the first of, I think, five or six movies we did together. Yeah. And so you said that that is the movie that sort of got you into Canada. But I thought it seems like uh, another one of your movies. I wondered, um, Svengali, right? You also wrote the original draft of Svengali, did you not? Yeah. Yes. And it, was that at all an influence also when you're we're coming up with the story for CoverGirl? Because I know it's it's another mentorship, no, this no, one about a singer. No, but Later on, um, I'm trying to remember. I, I I had a friend named Peter Frankovich, whose dad, Mike Frankovich, ran Columbia Pictures at one time. And, and Peter was working at uh, CBS. And he brought me in to rewrite... I think it was rewriting uh, this facelift movie, the one that we met with Janet Lee. And then Mirror, I, Mirror. Mirror, Mirror. And, and, then, uh, and then he had me come in on, on Jane Mansfield. And uh, and then the, the uh, Svengali for this very strange man called Robert Almey, this Hungarian, who was a photographer before he became. Do you remember the, the picture of the, uh, the Buddhist monk setting himself on fire? Yeah, I do. Mm. I yeah, do. Robert Halmy gave him the matches. Wow. Wow. And anyhow, he became, you know, like all those great Hungarian, you know, Gabriel Pascal and, and all those, and, and the Cordes, you know, something about Hungarians and movies. And wow. uh, he he offered me the rewrite of it. Sweaty golly, but I don't have a lot of money. Why are you talking to me about it? You know? <laughs> but if you do this, then you're going to do something a big thing, but you know. And and uh, at the time it was going to be Yul Brynner, and I was thrilled to death. I thought, oh my god, Yul Brynner, you know. So I really, you know, did it for him. And then, and then as happens, you know, someone else rewrote me, and it ended up, I've never seen it. it was Peter O'Toole in it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we talked to Mitchell Galen, who ended up working for that producer and produced that. Wow. I think he, yeah, yeah, we talked to him. He he got stuck in Hung on, in Hungary. He he yeah. actually went over there to produce. Oh, did they make it there? Oh my god! They didn't make Svengali there, but they made another. He made another movie for him. Right. And he sent him to Hungary and said, go do the rest and left him there to do the whole production. Not Svengali, but another movie. So it's funny that those li these lines in inter inter it was inter sort of a sort of a trial by trial by fire, like send him out there and see if he could if he could make it work. Then, yeah, sink or swim. I'm trying to think that Bob Holmey do that hunchback of Notre Dame with uh, Anthony Hopkins. And so I think they did that in Hungary. They, they may have. They may have. I don't know. So, so this leads us to Cover Girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> is this like, uh, did you write this on your own or was this an yes. idea? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a, a script that you sold then? No, not at all. This man, I was with ICM at the time. Uh, Dan Petrie Jr. was my agent and he called me and he said, uh, Pierre David wants to meet you uh, to discuss a, a movie for you to write. So it was complete, you know. And uh, Pierre David is a very interesting man. At the time, he looked very much like uh, Fred Flintstone. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he would, uh, I remember one time we were we were in a disco in Montreal. And he said, Charles, I think you have a crunch on that girl. Uh, it, will get, crunch. it will get you nowhere. She is a Puritanian. But ah, Puritania. <laughs> I spent about eight months in, in Montreal on that picture. And oh, by the time it was done, my English was appalling. <laughs> I'll go to Montreal for, you know, I thought a couple months and improve my French. But Pierre insisted that the staff all speak only English with me. Hmm. So do you? So you wrote the script and brought it to him, or you sold the idea to uh, Pierre? No, and then I want to do a movie about the modeling industry. <laughs> okay. So it was like you know, years ago, Samuel Goldwyn back in the forties, thirties. Uh, his wife Frances went to the, the salon in Beverly Hills. You know, it's something like Elizabeth Arden or something. He was waiting outside for her, waiting, she didn't come out. So he walked in and he suddenly saw all of these dryers and all these women having been, how long is this, what is this place? And they explained, he said, this is a movie. He had writers on that for five years. He could never get a script. It was, I felt it was the same thing. Pierre wanted something about modeling. Hmm. So he came up with this story about this. This this struggling young model, and she meets a powerful man. I was sort of, I think, autobiographical for Pierre. Although I thought that was him, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, uh, James Woods was going to play the lead. Oh, really? But Pierre had a partner named uh, Victor Sokolov. Anyhow, Victor was his partner. Victor did all the early David Cronenberg movies. Okay. Okay. The next thing I knew, James Woods wasn't playing the lead. He was going to do a picture called a Scanners or something like that with David Cronenberg. I think Video Videodrome didn't he do Videodrome? Videodrome? Scanners yeah. was the one that that put uh, Ironside on the Ironside, map. Ironside, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. So anyhow, 
so James Woods was out of my life before he was ever in it. <laughs> Next, <laughs> Jeff Conaway uh, was going to do it, you know, fresh off Taxi. What I didn't know was that he had been, you know, pushed off Taxi. Mm. And, um, but he and I, we, we, we clicked right from the beginning. I loved him. And, uh, but he felt betrayed by the director who wasn't interested in my script, but I didn't know that until the movie was over. He was doing this, this subversive second movie with a little girl who wasn't in my script, but she would end up being in all kinds of scenes. And finally, when Pierre David saw the final movie, he said, what is this? Where is Charles' script? What happened? So he brought in an American editor. I had been cut out completely from the director's cut. And then this editor told me, said, thank God. He said, I found all these scenes with you. <laughs> so it went back in there again. That was my second, uh, Kenny and I appeared together in that. And, uh, and then we did Reno and the Doc a couple years after that. And he was nominated for Genial. And we did a few more movies after that. Yeah. But, but, um, but that's interesting about CoverGirl because I read this interview with, with, uh, uh, with the director, with with Jean Claude Lord, yes, and it's, and it's on the set saying, "I am the Lord." <laughs> really? <laughs> oh yeah! Wow. wow. He so he he did an interview with a uh, French Canadian magazine, I think, called Erudite, mm -hmm. and I had to translate it, but it did talk about how he wanted to make the movie like a fairy tale. And he says Pierre didn't understand that, so I guess he tried to do that. That's so. When we were talking about Cover Girl, I wondered, is that the movie he tried to make, or did he try to make that movie after you had already shot the movie? Because it sounds like your script was not that. But he he, uh, I believe he passed away a couple years ago. Um, but he um, he had never made a movie in English. He'd made these these small budget films in Quebec, and Pierre, the company Pierre worked at, produced it. And this was Pierre thought it was time for him to break into a bigger world of filmmaking, and and he was you know he spoke English well enough, but the the, the movie I wrote was had no interest in him. Mine was a you know a boom 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 New York nineteen eighties you know, and and the fact they were going to make. I mean, it's so funny. There's so many background people. Sometimes like, you can't find these people. Are clearly from Quebec. The art direction was so Quebecois, you know. Yeah, yeah. It definitely doesn't exactly appear to be New York. It does. No. It does give. It although, although there was, they went to New York for about two days. I think Jerry Hall. I don't know if her scene is still in there or not. Mm. At Tavern on the Green. And she's she yeah I don't I don't know if she's in there I don't recall her but she is listed in the credits as uncredited but like I don't I don't I don't having seen the movie a few times I yeah I don't I Alina, her. Alina who I I didn't know I wasn't aware of her at all she was the one who was married to that guy from the Cars mm -hmm. yep you know Rico Kasich that's right that's right uh, I certainly never met her. Um, the end of the last shot in the movie was done in New York because my best friend's son was about 18 months old. So we got him at the end. He's the little boy that being held at, at, mm -hmm. at Irene Ferris. Who... 300 girls auditioned for this movie. And uh, 
she got it. The, the Jean-Claude Lord was besotted with her. And he would sit in rushes every day. He wouldn't allow her to go to rushes. But he would call her fresh with, now you are coming in the room. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, my God, how beautiful. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and here David had said to me, uh, Charles, on this film, uh, you will cast the men and I will cast the women. <laughs> so I, I I have to ask in this in the original script was the robot in the original script? Well, he was. I really can't remember. I mean, he was he was involved in this. Oh my God, I knew nothing about that, but I knew it was kind of hip about these mm -hmm. games. I mean, I think that was the first time Pac Man. Like, yeah, weird. yeah, yep. Um, oh, I know, I know for sure the owl. With, with the cameras mm -hmm. and that yep. was because Pierre got very when I got a call one afternoon before shooting started you know his bizarre French Canadian I, Charles uh, what is this on page there is an ol on page 12 <laughs> I thought a hole <laughs> I said Pierre I'm looking at this there's no hole no not a hole an ol I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I went, oh, my God, O-W-L. I said, Pierre, set un ibu. And un ibu? How can it have the camera? I said, you have to get props to build it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the stupidest thing I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. And that did that movie proceed, or was it the same year? Yeah, I think it was the same year Star Wars came out that we were shooting. That you were shooting? Uh, maybe, um, maybe Return of the Jedi. No, well, yeah, no, I this. I went, I'm pretty sure I saw Star Wars because Star Wars is '77, so and right. and Empire is so 1980. This that robot was based on R2D2. Sure, sure. Mm. I don't, maybe I did. I don't remember whether I suggested that there was the mechanical what i also didn't realize until about the third time i saw it that the voice of the robot was jeff really yeah i don't yeah. think i remember that that's oh. caught away voice coming out of the thing well particularly i think uh harrison when he gets the robot i think he it doesn't he make it that the voice or was the voice is the voice always jeff conaway you've seen this movie more than i have <laughs> <laughs> And you know it's on Blu-ray? Yes. Yeah, we we oh, own it. He owns it on Blu-ray. <laughs> do I know it? <laughs> and that's interesting. Those those women do not appear. They're not in the movie. Right. They're not in the movie. The, the women on the poster are not in the film. But my my leading man in the last few movies I've done is a wonderful actor named Brent Huff. He's also a filmmaker. And one of those women is his first wife. Because he flipped out when he, he finally said, that's my wife, my ex-wife. I said, what? I said, where was this done? I thought, why in God's name with all the beautiful women we had? Yeah. Why weren't they assembled, you know, for a shoot or something? But to go and use these women who have nothing to do with the movie was so bizarre. Yeah, it's very strange. Everything about shooting that movie was bizarre. And you were also the, the, the creative consultant on the film. Was that just because you were also casting and you had written it? You were in it. They, um, 
They couldn't give me a producer credit for some reason. So he came up with this creative consultant. But yeah, I was basically a, you know, an associate producer on the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you were there throughout all of this. Were you not the editing, obviously, because Pierre took the, you know, took the negative to L.A. and cut it out in Los Angeles, as you were talking about. But um, well, I got it loose from Jean-Claude Lord, you know, because he made him. Jean-Claude Lord made this what I can only drive as a sort of Quebecois kitsch, you know, uh, you know, very French kind of frou-frou. Thing with this little girl who lives in an apartment across the way from Kit, uh, and, and you know they sit and they stare at each other across. Pierre kept saying, "Where is that girl there again?" <laughs> but he did bother going to Russia's because he uh, he was always dashing off to Hollywood or Paris or something. It's not the girl that's already in the movie because there is a girl that's in the movie and is offered. Yeah, yeah, she was or whatever her name was. But the, she was very good, and I don't think she ever worked again. But she was sweet. But that's not the girl that Jean Claude oh, Lord was. No. Uh, the the uh, American editor who came in eliminated this girl. Oh wow! And how much of the movie? Yeah, how much of the movie was did that consist of? Like, it, was it a pretty significant plot point in the original? I, cut? I never saw that cut. All mm-hmm. I know is that it was it was. Uh, it was a nice man. And, and Pierre had a, 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 an assistant named Denise Denovi who went on to become a big, uh, yep. lately a director too. Um, yeah, she worked, I, she produced movies for New World as well. She produced um, yes, Heathers. Heathers, that's right. Mm-hmm. But I, she must have rubbed the editor the wrong way because that opening sequence, uh, which had, I did I knew nothing about where, where a kit is at some photo session or something. Mm-hmm. She's being interviewed. The off-screen voice, which I think was that editor, where he says something about that little creep to know. You know. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, how was the experience for you as an actor? Did you enjoy like did you enjoy that at all? I mean, obviously Jean-Claude Lord was That was my first um other than a little cameo in in uh, uh Deadly Companion, whatever. This, I I wrote the part for myself. I was constantly at loggerheads with Pierre W. Because I wrote that part for myself. First movie I ever acted in was about 10 years earlier, uh, a movie called Patton. And Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, wow. I mean, looking back, the first movie I ever acted in won the Academy Award. And I was cut out of it. (laughs) Years after that, I would have dreams where I went to see Patton and my scene was restored. And I so so I always always felt I had a, a meeting with, with being on camera. And uh, my friend Colin Fox, who uh was ended up being in that movie and then was in another film that I a short film I made with him and Ken Welsh a couple of years ago. Which sadly, I, I I photographed Ken's death scene, you know, five years before he died. Mm. Ooh. Anyhow, uh, Colin came. Colin plays the maitre d' uh, at at the at the big party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all actor in you know mm-hmm. white uh, white tux, uh, white tails, and uh, <laughs> and his character's name was Reynard. 
Clouseville, which is French for Fox. And he actually had been in a French-speaking movie for Jean-Claude Lord. So uh, when I suggested, oh, that's what yes, yes, let, let us have Colin. And Colin arrived halfway to the shoot, and he arrived in the afternoon, I took him to Russia's. And I remember him sitting there with me and seeing a whole bunch of stuff with me. And he turned to me and he said, you figured it out, didn't you? I said, what are you I said, all those years of you watching movies, you figured out how to act on camera. And, uh, yeah. So wow. I, the camera seemed to like me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been acting on film whenever I can ever since. The experience overall for you, though, you said, you kind of said it seemed like it was kind of a wild experience. Um, Jean-Claude Lord in his interview said he called the experience hellish. That was either his, that's either Google Translate or or what he really said. I don't know. Because Jeff Conaway was so upset because mm. of, of Jean-Claude Lord shooting scenes that weren't in it, that he basically was ignoring Jeff, that he was sodded with Irina. And I remember Jeff, you know, saying to him, this is not the, this is not the picture I agreed to make. And, you know, Jean-Claude Lord couldn't care less. And and Jeff, God bless him, you know, started drinking. I remember he turned up and he said, absolutely out of it. And Jean-Claude was saying, uh, is he on some sort of drug? Hmm. But it, and I'm not telling tales out of school because he ended up on a series about rehab. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, tragically, uh, I don't even know if he made it to sixty or not. It's, yeah, it was very sad. Very, very sad. Just, he was so talented. Mm -hmm. and to me, he had that that Cagney New York energy. I just fell in love with him you know, when we first met. Yeah, he was miserable. It was, I think, the worst experience of his career. Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, we, we and. and it turned out we discovered we lived literally around the corner from each other in, in, in the hills, Hollywood Hills. And for the first two weeks when we came back, we only were together because we had ended up not speaking English properly. And we were <laughs> the only people. When we came back to L.A., we didn't speak English properly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we had this wonderful stills photographer who loved to hang out with him. The guy was like 6'5". And we were in a Japanese restaurant one night. We're telling stories. And the guy leaned in and he said, uh, speak closer when you speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so when when the movie, it doesn't open in the U.S. for a few years, right? It, you shot in 81. I know nothing of it opening in the U.S. It might have played in Denver. Uh, okay. I remember. One of my cousins had a cousin on the other side of the family who lived in South Africa, and and he sent her a clipping from the from the show page, and there it was in Johannesburg, you know, full page ad for this. You know, they they showed it in theaters outside of it. Never, to my knowledge, played in Canadian or American theaters. So it kind of went, did it go straight to video with New World when they picked it up, or were you even aware? You weren't even really aware that that happened. I'm not aware of any video of, of oh yes, of course, with that terrible box. But I'm telling you, I think it's at Kino Lorber last that, year. Yes, that yeah. that's what uh, they the Scorpion. It's a Scorpion uh, Blu-ray, and Kino uh, distributes it. Wow, 
I, I got excited. I thought, well, maybe Screwball Academy can't be. Now, do you know that one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise known as Loose Ends. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I don't think that's been on Blu-ray yet. That, no, that's another one. That was that was a guy called Damian Lee. Yes, he's now, how you made Reno and the Doc. That's right? right. That's right. Because Sean Ryerson, who was his production manager slash producer, um, they got a deal with Club Med in Mexico. To the first film company being allowed to make a feature at Club Med. And then they only they had this, I don't know where it was, Maltese director or something. They ended up with 13 usable minutes of film. And uh, so then they had that. And I was, a, Sean said, I've got, I've got this guy. Uh, he could, uh, you know, he could, he could get us, he could figure the problem out there. And so that's how I met Damien Lee. And then they abandoned the whole idea. They just you know, took the loss. Mm-hmm. And Damien had written a 10-page uh, synopsis of something called Reno and the Dawn. And he said, uh, would you like to write and direct this? I said, absolutely. I said, if I can have my two actors play Reno and the Dawn. And well, she Henry Raymond. And that was a wonderful experience. You know, I made that picture in maybe three weeks. And I had Really? Yeah, it was like April to May of 1983. It was shot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, that—that's what I. That's according to IMDb. If <laughs> I know. I mean, again, that was that was like this month of November that year. I had I had uh, suddenly Cover Girl, Reno and Doc, and and Screwball Academy all came out around the same time. So when you, so you get this treatment from Damian Lee. How much of the story was there for Reno and the Doc? Well, the story was there. There was no dialogue, right? You know, right, right. Expanded, and you know he had this notion of Have you seen Reno and the Doc? Yo, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. So he had the telepathy thing as well. But I just knowing these two actors, I did it was tailored. I tailored it for them. This is what I what I like to do. I write for specific actors sometimes. Okay get them but by using them in their persona i'm able to you know create these these roles so did you take any license then with the story i mean he had the you're saying he had the telepathy part uh you obviously had the cast that you wanted so you tailored it for them was he intending it to be men sort of in their middle age or did he want it to be younger guys that was was him that this whole idea that this was this middle-aged guy was scared I mean, in retrospect, I look back and I think, how did I allow Reno and, and Gunther to wear the same sweaters? They were the same colors. <laughs> what the freak was that about? <laughs> but, you know, what did I know? Uh, but at the same time, you know, as, as Colin had pointed out about me with acting, I, I, you know, watching all these movies from the 30s, you know, right up to the 60s and loving them. Uh, I, I would do things, and I remember my assistant, my first AD, who had studied filmmaking at York University, he said, uh, you can't do that. I said, why not? Well, because it's, it's I said, what is it? You know, I remember there was a scene where Reno's sitting up in bed and Doc is sitting at the end of the bed, and I would rack focus when mm-hmm. Reno spoke. 
he'd be a focused dark wasn't and then this guy fought me on that i said you know also because you know it was a low budget movie we had to move 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 yeah it was it was a it was a movie made for first choice network first choice was the hbo of, of canada um I have to stress that it's always listed as a TV movie because it was shown in Canadian theaters. Uh, we were nominated for, for Best for, Actress, for, actress you know, for the Genie Awards, but, but they still insist on it being a TV movie. And and you also wrote the lyrics for the Genie-nominated song, A Little Piece of Forever, which is a song that once we watched Reno on the Dock, I, I mean, you cannot, you cannot have that song yeah. uh, in your head. It's an earworm for sure. After watching on the Dock. Like, you know, they, it was nominated and they, they had the, the CBC used to broadcast the uh, Genie Awards every year and they would get different people. Do you remember Romp and Ronnie Hawkins? He played with Gordon Lightfoot and all sorts of, you know, he was okay. But his band played it. Uh, uh, for the Genie Awards, and I, it was like you know with the Oscars, we got people who didn't, sure. sing yeah. and that was that was a thrill for me that Rob and Ronnie Hawkins singing that song, and uh, I, I, I like I like writing. It's also interesting that uh, I had told I I would come up with what I thought were weird uh, melodies, you know, just to do it, and I would say to the composer, you know, it's something like that, but you know. And then they sort of take my melodies. This happened a couple of times. A funny story. I got to start writing the music too because you know I'm giving I'm giving these melodies away. <laughs> well, it's a, it, it is a super catchy song, and we 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 were going back and forth when we were watching the movie whether we liked that or if it was Reno's theme. They were both really very catchy songs. You know, I saw that today or the other day. Reno's theme. What the hell is that? I'm like, I don't know. But curiously, whether it's a uh, 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 ASCAP. I've never seen a penny for for mm. this. Uh, you know. Oh, really? Pointing something, huh? So I mean, um, it also then played on HBO for a few years too, didn't it? Actually, listen, it was on HBO for two years. This was a big deal for me. Yeah. Uh, and did it, and you said it played in Canada. Did and it obviously got nominated for awards. Was it's kind of a more of an obscure movie in the United States. Is it got? Is it more well known in Canada? I'm thrilled you like it. There's <laughs> one review only on IMDb gives it a one. And they wow! Have, and, and so please tomorrow write a review and put it <laughs> on there. <laughs> uh, although although Brian Cranston directed a movie that he wrote, uh, Desert Hearts or something like that. And and there was one review and it absolutely killed it. And he went on and wrote a big piece on IMDb saying, you know, what do you know? And you know, but I didn't want to do that. But if you like them, we please tomorrow, tonight, before you go to bed, write a review. <laughs> you know, I wanna I'd love to send you links from uh, just to let you know, you know, my company is Food Dog Films and we're gonna start a food dog streaming service. Oh wow, oh wow, awesome. Uh, was it, 2003. My God, it's almost 20 years ago. I directed my first American film called Hard Four. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Brian Cranston, Ed Asner, Dabney Coleman, wonderful cast. And uh, it was it was with National Lampoon, and then we took it away from them. 
and I've got three other unreleased feature films. So we're going to start this streaming service so that people can see the movies. I have other friends who own their movies. We're going to do that. And we're going to start a food dog uh, festival for, you know, because all these movies, there must be thousands of film festivals in this country, and nobody ever sees these movies because they never get deals. Right. I'm going to offer them an outlet for these movies with with a few commercials during an hour. Of course. But it should be free to anybody who wants to see it. So, I, you know, I want to come back and talk to you guys about this. That would be great. That would be We'd great. We'd love but, that. Uh, we love talking with you. We're big fans. The book, There's a Body in the Window Seat, History of Arsenic and Old Lace. I highly recommend getting it. Charles Dennis's new book. One last question about it. I just did want, I did want to ask you, is there something that you learned about the movie uh, that you only discover while you're researching the book? Oh, God, yes. I mean, that whole thing about uh, Harry Grant and, and uh, Ori Kelly, you know, that whole bit that, you know, debunking some of the stories about, you know, Queen for a Day. Well, you know, sorry, great story, couldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, the only other regret I have now is in the, I came up with a theory that's on the commentary that didn't make it into the book. The whole thing about Capra and madness. Oh, yes, yes. Thinking, oh, my God. It's a running theme. It's not a, a one-off with Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm -hmm. People are crazy in all his movies. Very true. Very yeah. true. Deeds is supposed to be nuts. Uh, John Doe is, is you know, going to jump because he's nuts. Yeah. But it's very much a theme that Cap, you know, and that discovering through my friend McBride that, that Capra's mother was nuts, you know. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think the commentary is really great. It's incredibly interesting. I hope you get to do more commentaries because I, I really enjoyed it. And so pick up the Criterion disc as well as picking up Charles's new book. And I'm working uh, on another book now called The Barber's Son, The Noir Life of Nick Conti. It's a biography of Richard Conti. Whose, whose life is very much like one of the movies those noir films started. Perfect. Awesome. That is perfect. And uh, is that coming out next year? Uh, I I haven't a, a minute. I've been I've been talking to people. Al Pacino. You know, I'd completely forgotten he actually didn't have a scene with with uh, Richard Conti. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, true. Khan is there. It was at the wedding, and but he, Al, you know, telling you that he just. He really liked it, and he wished he could have spent more time with it. But I'll be talking to Coppola and, and uh, Scorsese because, you know, for Scorsese, I mean, you know, the Richard Conti was, was the John Garfield of Italian American actors, and I discovered he was discovered by John Garfield, hmm. who, who got him in the Neighborhood Playhouse. Wow! Mm. Wow! So that's mm. another fascinating book. Uh, my friend Daniel Mann, who directed I'll Cry Tomorrow and Come Back with Oshiba and all these things, he was great friends with uh, Nick Conti and, and uh, told me that he was one of the sparks for my doing this, the idea of the book. And, and uh, his son, Mark, is a very successful uh, film editor. And uh, we have been in touch with each other. So, you know, it, it, the hard part has been tracking down survivors who, you know, mm -hmm. I found this this actress Diane Foster, who had been in a couple of movies with him at Columbia, and she had just died when I finally got a phone number from her. 
Mm. And then wow. Dave Barron has been elusive. His manager keeps saying, uh, Mickey's going to, you know, uh, James is going to call you. I haven't heard from him. Times with the charity. He's 80 something now. You know? <laughs> yeah. Tommy, Cook, Tommy Cook, who played his kid brother in Cry of the City, he spoke with me two years ago. It was great. Oh, that's great. That's great. So you, you, you're well into this already then. This oh, yeah. I mean, I, that's what happens with me. I just accumulate all this stuff. Oh, and Norman Lloyd, uh, my dear friend who passed at 106, you know, two years ago, they were very good friends. And I, I did a lot of video with Norman about it so that potentially there is a documentary that can accompany the book as well. We will hopefully a year from now talk about the Barber's Son. <laughs> that would be terrific. Charles, thank you again for your time. Well, I, I had a ball. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, thank you Charles. Appreciate it. And that's it. That's our talk with Charles Dennis. What an incredible guy. I feel like I could have asked a lot more questions. There's there's I mean, so many. Cover Girl alone, we could have spent an hour on if we really wanted I, to. So many questions for that. Uh, but we did get to talk to him a little bit about the robot. I'm so glad. Yeah, finally. <laughs> questions. Some questions were answered, and that's important. Right. I mean, the, I, sometimes you talk to people and you realize, look, there's just going to be, I have more questions. And we're just, there's a lot more we need to know. <laughs> sometimes know? the yeah. answer you to know? the questions unveil more questions. It's... <laughs> You know, you don't you don't uh, solve a crime with just one interview. You know what I mean? Sometimes you need to, to to figure out more stuff. Not that these films are crimes, but you know we we have questions. Uh, also, well, crimes in the sense that they killed it. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, this was a. By the way, this closes out Noir Vember for us, oh. and I'm so glad that Charles's next book is going to be about noir which also ties in so well with our theme um did he write the book just for noir member i think so i feel like he did i feel like he did just to like make sure that this ties in he's such a great guy uh so good so good of him such a fan of the podcast uh but yeah this is the end of noir vember and now we're gonna we're gonna be moving on next month to december Mm. where we celebrate all of new world's films that that have death in the title (laughs) so really almost all of them (laughs) there's one there's one that might you know you nwpp vips might already have one already in mind and then we had to dig Mm -hmm. and dig for a second and we finally came up with one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got some good stuff coming up uh, in December. So we're excited for that. Hope you're excited as well. And thank you guys so much for coming with us on our our first, very first annual Noir Vember, where we celebrated the noir-ish films that New World has put out. So we hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you again to Charles buy his book, buy the Criterion D, uh, Blu-ray, or DVD, depending on... Or DVD, what. yeah, sure. <laughs> or mean, the or Criterion the... VHS, just oh, go for yeah, it. Yeah, are they putting out putting it on Laserdisc? I don't know, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I'm holding up for the Betamax. <laughs> so, please buy that too, and listen to his incredible commentary, and uh, we'll see you next time on the New World Pictures Podcast. Bye, everybody.